When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are finally talking in depth about something that we have mentioned many times on the podcast, Mm -hmm. but never really given a ton of context to. And that is the old school Boston marriage, also known as a Wellesley marriage. Right. I did not know that it was also known as a Wellesley marriage. Is that because so many women from and at Wellesley were cohabitating? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was Wellesley specifically, but um, women's colleges in mm-hmm. general Makes sense. were uh, just rife with ladies coupling up with each other. Yeah. What I really loved and what I do hope we convey today reading about this topic was how it's such a product of its specific time at the intersections of people's attitudes about uh, sex and relationships and romance, uh, about women's friendships and relationships with each other, and about the whole idea of separate spheres. Because as we'll get into, obviously, it's not that women today don't live together in the same way that they did in this era that we're talking about. But the dynamics of a Boston marriage are so particular to the time, and I think it's fascinating. Well, it's particular to the time and also particular to class as well, which we'll get into. But first, for people who have not heard us mention Boston marriages many times on Stuff Mom Never Told You, what it is, essentially, or was, I mean, although I guess technically Boston marriages can still exist if you're just, like, cohabitating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with a with a same-sex partner. And if you're just really into, you know, old terms and... and- yeah, and if you're really into like um like reform work, you, you know? wear bloomers and you know you're really into settlement houses and giving fellow women a leg up, maybe you wear a top hat from time to time or a monocle <laughs> and of, or all of these things. Yeah, um uh, settlement houses not to be confused with settlers of Catan. Which I guess you could play in a settlement house. If, yeah, in your Boston marriage in any city that doesn't have to be Boston. Although I just realized we really haven't no. defined what a Boston marriage is. Nope. And why um, it's referred to as a Boston marriage. Like, why not like a St. Louis marriage? 
Or a San Francisco marriage. My grandparents had a St. Louis marriage. Oh. Yeah. But it wasn't at all like a Boston marriage, nope. right? So a Boston marriage is best described as relationships between educated, wealthier white women in Victorian era New England in particular. Like New England was the hotbed. It was. <laughs> for Boston marriages, hence the Boston part. Um, and of course they weren't legally married, but they were sort of married in every other type of way. They shared finances. Obviously, they uh, had personal fondness for each other. They were likely suffragists. But as far as sex goes, they may or may not have been doing it on the regular with <laughs> their their Boston spouse. Um, but, but they also, too, tended to call each other wife, helpmeet, and husband. Yeah. And Lillian Faderman, who's a an expert on Boston marriages traces these romantic friendships, as they are called, uh, these relationships between women all the way back to the 16th century and kind of stemming from there. I mean, you have to, to think that before and, and we'll get into this, too. We're giving you all sorts of hints and spoilers. But before we hit like the 19th and 20th century, when all of a sudden everyone is afraid of homosexuality, women's relationships, even the very, very intimate ones, were so important. And they were looked at as precious and necessary for a woman's life and development. Um but the thing is, we haven't heard a lot about these intimate relationships, whether they were sexual or not, because a the Victorian ladies just might not have been talking about sex all that often, whether it was with a man or a woman. Oh, certainly not, Caroline. And, uh, or they would have called it something else, something very euphemistic. Like fluffing your petticoats. <laughs> oh, I'm never going to look at a petticoat the same way, because, you know, I see them all the time. Well, yes. Uh, but there's also the whole, like, minor thing about how men write history. Well, and uh, not to get off on a total tangent, but also gendered perceptions of friendships, where for a long time, male friendship was considered like the pinnacle of human relationships. Right. The real life buddy comedy. Yeah. Like bromances were it. Yeah. And, and it was the same during this period, whereas female friendships were just kind of, you know, very emotional and uh, essentially just practice for marriage. So essentially like dress rehearsal for a relationship with another dude. Right. Well, you also have the uh, aspect of it, too, where once attitudes toward uh, same sex relationships of any kind start to shift, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you do also see um, descendants or uh, relatives or editors who are looking at the letters and memoirs of these women that they left behind, and they are editing out mentions of love, affection, sex, whatever, intimacy, because whereas like maybe a 100 years before these women's death, it wouldn't have been a big deal because a lot of women and men, too, spoke to their the members of their sex at, in a very intimate way. And it wasn't weird. Once we start to move into that time when people are real squicked out about same-sex relationships, you do start to see more and more letters being thrown in the trash, essentially. You you see that with some of Edna St. Vincent Millay's letters. You see that with several other writers, for instance, in history who had these relationships with women and their editors were like, nope, 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 we're covering that up. Too romantic. Too romantic. Reel it in, Edna. <laughs> um, so we could say that the heyday of Boston marriages in terms of them being 
relatively open. Like people in these middle and upper classes knew that certain women lived with women. I mean, they were kind of like glorified spinsters. Yeah. And it was okay. Um, and the Encyclopedia of Gender and Society traces the term Boston marriage and the specificity of Boston to Henry James's 1886 book, The Bostonians, which stars feminist protagonist Olive Chancellor, um, who falls in love with a conservative ingenue named Verena Tarrant. Um, and Olive convinces Verena to move in with her. And she kind of sets about like sort of sort of tutoring her in the ways of suffrage and women's rights. And Verena's like, oh, this is this is so fascinating. And James hints around at, you know, obviously uh, a, a deeper, deeper than friendship level of their relationship. Yeah. And if Henry James's name sounds familiar, aside from being a famous writer who's really well known in history and aside from, you know, just guys you meet at the bar named both Henry and James. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's probably because you remember us mentioning him in our episode on the Marmorian flock, which is all of those fabulous sculptresses who lived in Rome in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And he used the term Marmorian flock to basically dismiss them as just like a group of weirdos. Um, so I love that, like, he's cropping up again, coining terms about groups of women. Well, and soon after the Bostonians comes out, it's kind of interesting that that James was so dismissive of those sculptresses, because in real life, this woman named Sarah Orne Jewett publishes The Country of the Pointed Furs in 1896. And it was this huge hit. And James was like, oh, this is a little, little fantastic <laughs> book. Uh, and it reminds me of old Olive and Verena, because Sarah Orne Jewett and Annie Adams Fields had been Boston married, essentially, since 1882. And no one, not even old stuffy Henry James, batted an eyelash because, this is the thing about it, it was presumed that there could not possibly be a sexual element to these relationships. Because mm -hmm. at the time, dudes were like, ladies, 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 <laughs> you know, we don't mind if you Spencers want to live together because we know... That without a penis, you cannot uh, you cannot enjoy any physical pleasure whatsoever. I mean, literally, like yeah. they they really thought that sexual pleasure um, between people with two vaginas. Uh, <laughs> How many vaginas do these people have? <laughs> yeah, either four vaginas in a room or two. I don't know. Um, four vaginas <laughs> walk into a bar. <laughs> um, and some Victorian guys are like, oh, I don't I don't care. So. Um, so because of that, and also, like you said, Caroline, like Victorian women would not be openly talking about sex anyway. Yeah. So it wasn't seen as that scandalous. And really only until recently with scholars like Lillian Faderman, who, I mean, just shout out, shout out, shout out to her because she essentially wrote this episode for us. Um, only recently have scholars begun questioning this presumed asexuality. Which blows my mind. I mean, you had and, you know... Uh... We'll talk about some more of these women in detail here in a second, but you have all of these biographers, men, men biographers, <laughs> uh, who essentially 
asexualized and virginized a lot of these women, especially if they're women important to our country's history uh, in terms of suffrage and women's rights and things like that. It's like, okay, well, we really want to talk about what contributions this person made to history, but we don't want to talk about whatever that is because that's like kind of perverted and weird or inverted, as the sexologist would call it. Yeah. uh, Side fact, Catherine Lee Bates, author of America the Beautiful, Boston Married. Nice. Don't hear that in history books. You sure don't. But I also want to point out, you know, I mentioned earlier about the whole, like, people after you die, burning your letters and stuff. Um, Fields' editor, Annie Adams Fields' editor, nixed a lot of the intimate information from her letters that, that she exchanged with Jewett uh, when she published their correspondence after Jewett's death because by that time you were starting to see sexologists' opinions of same-sex relationships creeping into popular culture and creating that kind of like sex and gender panic stuff. So yeah, they're another example of like, oh, don't publish that. It seems weird. But what wasn't weird was the level of intimacy that these women uh, developed with each other during this time. Um, and for this next part, we're going to be referencing Lillian Faderman's fabulous book, Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, A History of Lesbian Life in the 20th Century. And Faderman talks about um, what we mentioned earlier in terms of the those quote-unquote romantic friendships, romance in the sense of being fanciful or eccentric, not necessarily uh, the sexual kind of romance that we think of today. Um, those kinds of romantic friendships between middle and upper class white young women stretch back in documented history. So through letters, um, mostly because really letters are all we have of women's history um, after a certain they didn't, point. They didn't leave a Geocities page? No. Live journal? Nothing? No, not even a Zanga. (laughs) Uh, But they, Faderman says that these, you know, evidence of these friendships, in quotes, stretch back at least to the Renaissance. And again, they were perfectly normal because they were considered rehearsal, in quotes, for being married. And because the separate spheres ideology of the Victorian era was so strong with men being directed toward cultivating nation-building so-called muscle values, bros hanging with bros, and women being cast as these moral mavens who should develop their heart values. This was totally fine. And if you ended up in a Boston marriage... It was cool to call each other wife or call, you know, one of your partner's husband, whatever, because as Stephanie Coons mentioned to NPR, pre-1860s, marriage was super chill in the sense that you could just kind of like be like, yeah, we're married now. We're yeah. just married. You are my help meet. <laughs> mm. um, we are registered at Great and Barrel. So pick something up. But back then it literally was you would get a crate or a barrel. <laughs> or a barrel and that's it. <laughs> Hopefully one would be filled with, like, salted pork and the other with molasses. Hard tack. <laughs> Hard tack candy. Um, were there Boston marriages <laughs> in Little House on the Prairie? I Sure, yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, but, yeah, no one, Coons is like, no one was going to check your paperwork and right. be like, you're not married. And for a lot of working class women who would be in these arrangements, you would have more literal female husbands yeah. who would dress in men's clothes and go out into uh, the work world as 
as men. Yeah. And a lot of I mean, a lot of these couples weren't so secretive about it. And this is something that we read from literary history professor Sarah Nicolazzo, who talked to NPR. One of the women, the female husbands that she cites, for instance, is Lucy Ann Lobdell, who she describes as hermit, hunter, music teacher and female husband. And basically, uh, after Lobdell's husband died, she sends their child off to live with her parents and begins living as a man years later at some poor house or settlement house or whatever. You know, it is that era. Uh, she meets this woman who'd been abandoned by her husband and they run off together. But they're like walking around town with Lobdell dressed as a man and they've got a bear on a leash and like they're living in caves and they keep getting arrested for vagrancy. And Lobdell ends up like dying really sick. Like it's kind of a tragic story, but it is an interesting illustration of how around this time uh, your neighbors would be like, are you hurting anyone? All right, dress however you want. Yeah. Like, are, are you shoving it in my face? Yeah, they didn't want any PDA, obviously. No one wanted any PDA from anyone at that time, um, and to some extent still today. Uh, but, yeah, in those, like, smaller areas, it still wasn't a big deal. And to the point that Nicolazzo mentions that there was an entire uh, literary and journalistic genre devoted to these so-called, you know, female husbands, these mm-hmm. these couples at the time. People understandably, were pretty fascinated by them. Yeah. I wonder if James, Henry James, was a part of that, I guess. Oh, with the Bostonians? Mm-hmm. I guess or so, that yeah. sparked it? That would have to count in terms of uh, the literary genre. Yeah. Um, but it was really the growth of women's colleges, which then gave way to women's admissions in, uh, like, mixed-gender colleges, along with growing professional opportunities for women to, you know, like leave the house uh, that changed everything. It finally, these colleges finally gave these women a separate space away from their parents to explore their ideas, explore their friendships and their sexuality um, if they wanted to. Um, And again, this is applying to women coming from families who could afford to send them to college. But nonetheless, uh, that's that's where it really all sprang from. Yeah, because for the first time you had women who didn't have to measure themselves against men or who didn't have to focus on, OK, I've got to prepare myself to be a wife to a man. Um, and also you have to take into account, too, that. A lot of women, it kind of went both ways. So a lot of women were like, oh, good, I get to go to school and get educated and get a job so I don't have to marry. Um, But a lot of people, too, were like, I just I don't know if I can do both. How can I pursue my progressive era causes to uplift society um, if I'm married to a dude? I don't have time to be a mom and a wife and keep house. And and so today, you know, we have all these discussions about women having it all and having the career and the husband and the kids and all of this stuff. Um, But back then it was like not thinkable to do both. Well, we should mention, too, that. Not all women's colleges were gung-ho about ladies going out into the world True. afterwards. Some of them were pretty much finishing schools. Yeah, so like, like seminaries. Yeah. Seminaries, well, and also just like, you know, schools that would teach you a few things, extra things, so that you would make for um, a more interesting hostess. Right, like balancing books on your head for your book balancing head parties. Yeah. I, I go to those all the time. And pronouncing words correctly and, and rustling your petticoats. 
Ooh. Ooh. I probably wouldn't teach that. That's dirty. Okay, well, so the first women's college, and we did talk about this way long ago, back in our women's college episode. But the first women's college in this country was Mount Holyoke, which opened in 1837. And by 1880, you had 40,000 women in college in this country with more than 150 institutions open to them. And so it's interesting to note that Smith College's 1884 graduating class, 54% of those women never married because of the things we talked about, whether you felt you couldn't have it all, you couldn't do both, or you didn't want to marry a dude. Yeah. Um, and also just the mere phrase, have it, having it all just um, like sets my jaw on edge. For sure. Exactly. Well, I mean, a lot of these women wrote about how there is no way that I can, would, or want to sit at home being a wife or stoking the hearth when I can be out changing the freaking world. Well, and after you have that taste of freedom Mm -hmm. to some degree in college, um, I, I can imagine it would be Hard to consider going back to such a domestic life. Um, so we should talk about campus life, though, because, y'all, this was the height of lady crushing. Seriously. So students at women's colleges in particular tended to form these intense girl crushes on each other, which and that's not news. Girl crushes still happen. Um, I still get lady crushes to this day. And I hope it never stops, to be honest, Caroline. Um, But they had an entire language for them, uh, calling them either crushes, you know, as we call them today, or spoons or smashes. If you really, really, really liked a girl and wanted to hang out with her, you were smashing on her. And they would write these effusive mash notes to the objects of their girl crush affection. Hence the nickname, a Wellesley marriage. I'm assuming mash notes were not the kind of game of mash that I played in like eighth grade English oh, class or gosh. homeroom where you like, you're like, I'm going to live in the swamp with a Mercedes with Billy and we're going to be rich. Uh, I hope that they were those mash notes because it would be like, all right, I'm going to settle down with, uh, Edith. Mm-hmm. Um, we will have. One horse, <laughs> three crates and barrels, <laughs> and no children. We're totally fine with that. Yeah. But, you know, these girls might also be smashing on a lady professor who was likely herself living in a Boston marriage. I mean, you had a lot of these cohabitating professors who essentially served as a type of relationship role model because you got to see it to be it, right? And that applies to jobs, but it also applies to relationships, especially to these women who are getting that first taste of freedom and independence and looking at these really brilliant women who are role models in so many ways anyway, in terms of academics and profession. But you're like, oh, I guess there's another avenue open to me. And they would pursue their smashes or spoons in a very date-like kind of way. So a Yale newspaper in 1873 reported on when a Vassar girl takes a shine to another, she straightaway enters upon a regular course of bouquet sendings interspersed with tinted notes, mysterious packages of Ridley's mixed candies, Mm. locks of hair, perhaps, and many other tender tokens until at last 
The object of her attentions is captured. The two women become inseparable, and the aggressor is considered by her circle of acquaintances as smashed. And listeners, I would just like to note that I have left some old Werther's originals and hairballs on Caroline's <laughs> desk, and not a tinted note have I received. Oh, well, I've left you some some chocolates. You have left me some notes. And chocolates, it's true. You've been a much better <laughs> smasher than me. Oh, i got to step up my smash game. Um, well, is this right? A 1901 article in Cosmopolitan? Yes. Did it exist? It existed in 1901. Oh, absolutely. Cosmopolitan magazine, of course. Where <laughs> else did ladies find out how to ruffle their petticoats? <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to let that go. Um, But yeah, this article in 1901 described these romantic all girl dances at places like Vassar and Smith that involved those same courtship rituals with flowers, taking your date to dinner, escorting a date home. And, you know, they would write about how these girls, they would develop these like super serious lady crushes and be pining away for each other. They wrote about one girl who like went to bed crying because Susan didn't end up being able to go to the dance with her. Oh, Suze. Suze, always being a heartbreaker. But which, which, was it a yearbook? Once we start to see the sexologist's fear of same sex relationships trickling down into society and suspicion of women's intimate relationships kind of percolating. There was some, I want to say it was a yearbook or something like the Yale newspaper where they wrote about these smashes and crushes and spoons, but they did it very winking, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And they were writing about like, Oh no, our incredibly pure friendships between like Gertie and Edith. Like, no, Gertie wasn't crying about like having her heart broken. She simply was just sad that Edith failed her test. You know, very like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, some of these women are having sex. <laughs> you know, like, uh, because college students forever and ever aren't idiots. And especially when the grownups try to you know, project their fear onto them. And so I love the little bit of snark that you see happening once the fears of women being close start to enter into the popular discussion. But the thing that stood out to me so much in reading about women's motivations for, aside from just sexual attraction and just legit loving another woman in a very deep and poetic kind of way, um, Aside from those kinds of factors, there's also this element of economic independence, which was so crucial to these even working because economic independence equaled relationship independence. And this was just revolutionary for the time for women because that relationship independence and not needing a dude to get by and to subsist meant that you could actually forge a legitimately egalitarian relationship. And that, it seems like, is what so many of these women cherished so much about their relationships. Right. Like you said, even if it was not sexual, even if it was not romantic or or the way that two people being married today is viewed, even if it really was just two women who were dedicated or committed to one another in any sort of way, that you're right, that opportunity to live your life the way you wanted to is is intoxicating for a lot of these women. 
I mean, as long as you were white and upper class, you could get away with it. Well, and again, you know, you did have some working class couples, um, you know, same sex couples who were living together. But survival for them often meant one publicly and sometimes privately too, um, presenting as a man in order to go out and make a dude's higher wage. Because, yes, the gender wage gap existed even back then. Um, but in terms of the professional opportunities for these college-educated women, a lot of times they would go on to be professors, um, sometimes doctors, social reformers, absolutely, um, artists and organizers. I mean, a lot of them were very much activists, mm-hmm. um, which is not surprising because, I mean, to even get to a point of being in a Boston marriage, it seems like you would have to be at least a tad progressive. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, these... These opportunities wouldn't necessarily have been open. These professional opportunities wouldn't necessarily have been open to them if they had gone the traditional route of getting married to a dude. Yeah, because a lot of times being a wife is its own job. Well, and for the longest time into the 20th century, once a woman married and or had children, it was like, okay, well, now we're going to ask you to leave. Oh, yeah. It wasn't until the 1950s that teachers um, finally won the right, like across across the land, um, won the right to keep teaching after they were married. Right. Because it was almost that benevolent sexism thing of like, oh, well, no, you, you're married now. You need to be at home cooking. So, like, get out of here. We're not going to hire you anymore. Go make a baby. <laughs> um, but one thing that uh, the literary history professor Sarah Nicolazzo emphasized to NPR in talking about Uh, these, quote unquote, female husbands and gender fluidity back in that day was that it's important to remember how gender identity really ranged. I mean, not everyone at the the time, not everyone in these relationships equated anatomy with gender, Mm -hmm. um, which, again, pretty progressive for the time. Um, Also, so-called female husbands were a way of adhering to social convention um, so that was kind of their way of fitting in, especially if you were working class or in a more professional field. And some wives really considered their husbands to be men, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it wasn't like they were just playing dress up. Yes, exactly. And I, I love I love that you see these attitudes proliferating in this period because it seems like, oh, my God, what would have happened if we had just continued along that track having these I mean, obviously, life is a lot better for a lot of us for so many reasons. We probably would have had a female president by now. I'll say that. I mean, we can vote now. So that's cool. Um, yeah. Women weren't even voting at this point. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know they were ruffling their petticoats, but they were not voting. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I it's kind of crazy to imagine what might have happened had we stayed on that more. I don't even want to say progressive because it wasn't necessarily progressive for them to think of gender in this way. It was just the status quo of like, I'm viewing gender and relationships and presentation in this way. Um, but if it weren't for those freaking sexologists. Yeah. I mean, cause it's not even the thing of like, of same sex relationships, but rather the self-sufficiency that they enjoyed for the very first time. Yeah. Um, but what about the sex, Caroline? Everyone's probably wondering. Well, I don't know if everyone's wondering this, but <laughs> we've got to talk about sex because, like we said, despite the erotic language in many 
of these women's letters to each other at the time, they were presumed non-sexual. Hence, Victorian folks being like, yeah, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. You know? Yeah, you're precious. Yeah, it's, uh, we'll, we'll come to your salon, your literary <laughs> salon. Um, and of course, there was no quantifiable evidence about how often these relationships were physically sexual. But it's like, does it really matter? I mean, sex at this point is so besides the point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you do have evidence there were people like, and I did not even realize this about Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist. Like, she and her lover exchanged, because I don't think they were living together, question mark, or maybe they were for a time. But she and her lover exchanged these super racy, like, romance novel level letters about your body this and your juices that and like, whoo, getting hot under the collar, like totally rustling those petticoats. Well, it's like, you know, before you could have phone sex, you had uh, before there letter was, sex. Yeah, before there was sexting, there was lettering. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. I need a I stayed up all night lettering and <laughs> need a new new inkwell. Well, I mean, and yeah, you see it, too, with um, Marmorian flock uh, head honcho Harriet Hosmer and uh, Louisa Lady Ashburton, her hubby, as she called her, or Hosmer was the hubby. Uh, Lady Ashburton was Misposa. Uh, and they would write these impassioned letters, like dripping with lust and talking about, I want to be in your arms and all of this stuff. But you're right. Like, it almost doesn't matter in the same way that, like, it doesn't matter if the couple you see walking down the street is truly having sex at home. It's more like these two people have found each other, have found a relationship dynamic that works and that allows them to be their best selves, hopefully, one would hope. Um and yeah, and, and you have the context of those Victorian times where, yeah, you don't have people really talking about sex openly anyway. So we don't really know. Well, and I like that that's the case because it definitely challenges our just heteronormative notion of sex equaling penis and vagina. And also the idea of sex being central to romance because sure. obviously these women had romance for days. Romance for days. So we wanted to highlight a few famous Boston marriages um, just to give you a sense of the kinds of ladies who were in these relationships. Although we should note that you know, this is certainly not all of the women. Um, and we want to start off in Wales. Yeah, so some of the... <laughs> OG Boston marriage ladies were referred to as the ladies of Schlangoshlin, which Welsh people, you're welcome to correct me, but I did Google how to pronounce that. Uh, these women, Lady Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, were shacking up around the turn of the 18th century. So this was not in the Victorian era. These were totally different petticoats that were being rustled. Um, and they referred to each other as my beloved, my bee, my better half. I love it because why wouldn't you? I mean, there's nothing weird about this because they're in a relationship. Why shouldn't they have adorable nicknames for each other? Which totally harkens to our episode on couple speak. Yes, that's right. You de- you develop your own language to foster intimacy. Um, but they were referred to, quote, as the two most celebrated virgins in Europe. And I have all the winks and nudges to give with that. Like you said, they were often, you know, women in these relationships were often virginized. Yeah. And the way people talked about them. So it could be appropriate. Sure. You know? yeah. um, but we have to mention how they got together because 
it was epic. <laughs> so what happened was Eleanor was 39 years old and obviously she did not want to marry a dude. And so her family was threatening to send her off to a nunnery. And which goes to show like how few rights women had, especially in the turn of the 18th century, because it was like, hey, you're uh, almost 40, but we are going to send you somewhere because we can do that because right. you're just property. Um, meanwhile, Sarah Ponsonby was 23 and she was on the verge of having to be married off to a scumbag dude she didn't like. So they were like, listen, we are in love with each other and we have to elope. We got to run away together. So runaway attempt. Number one, they dressed as men, packing a pistol, and um, had Sarah's dog Frisk along with them. And they rode through the night to catch a ferry, but the ferry was delayed. And so they were forced to hide in a barn, and then they were caught and taken home. Runaway attempt number two. (laughs) Eleanor escapes. And (laughs) I love this. She goes straight to Sarah's house. Hides in her closet. That's like such a 14-year-old, like... (laughs) I know, I know. Um, She hides in her closet for a while until, again, Eleanor is found out. I mean, these women were not very good at hiding. I will say that. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. Um, And by this point, their parents just, like, threw up their hands and were like, you know what, we don't want anything to do with you two. Just stop running away. Just be gone from our sight. And so they were like, we will do that. So... They hightail it with, I think Sarah's maid, no word on Frisk the dog. I really hope, <laughs> I really hope that Frisk made it out too. Um, and they finally settled down in this cottage in gorgeous Welsh countryside. I know that because I Google imaged it and now I want to go to Wales. Yeah. Well, their maid, who was named Mary, aka something like Molly the Bruiser, something like that. I mean, no kidding. Like, everybody considered her to be this really harsh Irish woman. But she and these two women had this great love and respect and care for each other. And the three of them are buried together on this estate. Oh, man. Yeah, but Eleanor and Sarah... We're totally Boston married in Wales. I mean, they shared a bed. They cut their hair short. They habitually wore riding habits with mannish beaver hats. And you want to talk about Googling something? I was picturing like a Davy Crockett, like raccoon cap. No, no, no. Beaver hats are top hats. But they're like super shiny and slick because they've got fur. Oh, my God. So these women were like, I'm just like. Picture that. Two women, short hair, uh, riding outfits, and top hats. And a fur top hat? Yeah. Like Jamiroquai style? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not that pickup artist-y looking. Uh, They were way more slick. Yeah, and um, their more masculine fashion sense was no big deal because they were like, listen, we're spending all of our money on books and cottage upkeep. And we don't really care to spend money on clothes, which is like Eleanor and Sarah, y'all do y'all love it. So our next couple is fascinating because they were known in literature at the time as one person, Mm -hmm. one man, Michael Field. But in fact, they were Catherine Bradley and Edith Cooper. Yes, but fun fact, they did wear a giant overcoat. One of them would sit on the other's shoulders and they would walk around with glasses and a mustache. Muppet style? Yeah. That's where the Muppets actually got that joke. 
Um, but yeah, during the 1890s, the two, as Michael Field, wrote 25 plays and eight books of poetry. And one of their lines is, my love and I took hands and swore against the world to be poets and lovers evermore. Ooh, Katie and Edith. Mm-hmm. Hello. Well, we also have to mention famed social reformer Jane Addams, um, whom I'm pretty sure Stuff You Missed in History class has done uh, a bio episode on, which you should go and listen to. Um, she and Mary Rosett Smith were in a Boston marriage for 40 years. But before that, Jane Addams's first love was her college bestie. There's college again. Uh, her college bestie, Ellen Starr. But um, they kind of parted ways. Or, and you see Ellen disappear. Ellen's letters start to fade out after Jane meets Mary, who is this philanthropist who um, for 40 years was her so-called devoted companion, who would travel with her. Uh, they would share a bed. They later bought a house together. And there's this really sweet letter from Jane to Mary saying how excited she is to have their house and mm-hmm. to be able to say the phrase our house and um, what the, all of the stuff that that means to her. Well, Jane even wrote Mary a poem describing the first time she saw her and how like, oh, basically it was basically saying, you know, my head was so wrapped up in all of my work that I barely noticed love right in front of me. And it's, it's just real Aww. sweet. And but here's another example, because I uh, did not know that Jane Adams was in a Boston marriage. And I mean, that's my failing. But it also goes to show the extent of that desexualization and virginization, so to speak, of these important women in history, because you did have all of these male biographers of Jane Adams, like in the 60s. Uh, writing about her and specifically leaving that out. And they interviewed women who were still alive in the 60s, who were in their 90s, who'd been around Jane Addams, had been around Hull House in Chicago. And they asked, they kind of kind of tried to ask, was like, she a lesbian? Basically dance around that question without saying those words. And one of the women that was interviewed for one of the Jane Addams biographies was basically like, it's funny that you're asking because it shows the generation gap between us because she was essentially saying like no sex ever happened between women at the whole house, which of course that's glossing over some stuff too. But I think it does speak to the different attitudes of Jane Addams's era where it's like, yeah, women can be devoted to each other and live together and, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be like a, a secret thing. Well, and I guess it's the, uh, you know, pros and cons on both sides of that because you have like the desexualization happening when it was hush hush. But then on the flip side of it, you have people being def- find through their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, and but that goes back to our conversation before the break about how these ideas about gender and these relationships were, quote unquote, progressive. Like for us, they would be considered progressive because how great would the world be? And maybe this is just me, but reading about Boston marriages, I just kept thinking how great the world would be if we just went back to not caring. I don't care who you want to have sex with. I don't care who you want to marry, like what gender you are, what your sexual orientation is. Like, oh, God, that would be so much more convenient for everyone. (laughs) We just didn't care. You do you. Frisk the dog. You do you. You do you, Frisk. 
Well, and then finally we have literary superstar Gertrude Stein, whose relationship with Alice B. Toklas was no secret. I mean, they were basically the Bragelina of <laughs> expat Boston marriages, but also an example of highly gendered roles, even within these, you know, more progressive relationships, because Alice was dedicated to kind of all things domestic, whereas Gertrude Stein was the public figure. She would go out. She would hang with, uh, you know, Hemingway and other smarty pants of the day. Yeah. And I think their relationship is such an interesting example that goes against what we've talked about in terms of egalitarian division of household labor when it comes to same sex relationships. But it also speaks to what we've heard time and time again from professional women, you know, straight, gay, bi, whatever, who say, yeah, this would all be easier if I had a housewife. Yeah. You know, that that joking assumption that like, yeah, if I had someone at home who could take care of the house. You know, that would free me up quite a bit more, too. But everybody we've basically talked about. No, literally everyone we've talked about so far has been white and and middle to upper class so far. Yeah, because, again, these arrangements were often products of class, because in order to live openly in a same sex relationship at the time, you would need that social standing and wealth already there to kind of weather the fact that you were really transgressing these gender roles. Um, so because we realized, like, wait a second, <laughs> we don't want to just like talk about white women because uh, it would be foolish to assume that only white women were lesbians in the 19th century and early 20th century. Because, of course, there were women of color in same sex relationships, too. Um, and documentation of that in the U.S., at least, goes back to the 1850s. I mean, in that alone, I mean, you have with Lillian Faderman saying that we have records of essentially white ladies letters going back to the Renaissance. But records of women of color, same sex relationships um, are so limited because of things like slavery. I mean, and it's all about who's writing the history. Right. It's not just dudes. It's white dudes and whose stories are considered worth telling and saving and who even had the means to write things down and preserve them. Yeah, but you do see these communities flourishing, especially during the 1920s Harlem Renaissance, um, for the same reason that we see Boston marriages emerging between upper class white ladies in the Northeast around the same time. It's that idea of economic autonomy and having those safe spaces for socializing. And so you do see like, what was the bar called? I think it was Mona's. Yeah. Where the the tagline was where girls will be boys instead of boys will be boys. And yeah. I think it was uh, cited in this Collector's Weekly article by Lisa Hicks that we read as the first lesbian bar in the U.S. Right. And where um, black lesbians and gay men would go gather because they knew it was a safer space. And it got so famous to the point where white tourists from New York, but also from out of town, would go to check it out. And and that essentially influenced some of the culture. And I mean, this speaks to a larger cultural movement at the time. But you do see like flappers, basically like white flappers influenced by this open culture that existed in these neighborhoods in New York. Um, and case in point, within the Harlem Renaissance, you have the blues scene, which was especially welcoming for lesbians like Gertrude Ma Rainey, uh, who, if you have seen the HBO biopic 
Bessie starring Queen Latifah as Bessie Smith. Um, Gertrude Ma Rainey was played by Monique. Um, and also you have at the time Bessie Smith and a blues singer who isn't as well known named Gladys Bentley, who was one of the only out lesbian performers at the time, because even though, yes, there were safe spaces within the blues and they, some of their songs would, I mean, directly address the fact that, you know, they would court women, um, especially as we move further into the 20th century, a lot of lesbian entertainers would have to remain closeted. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, wasn't, was it Gladys Bentley who wore the suits and tuxedos? Well, you have Ma Rainey who would wear um, a fetching white tuxedo. Oh. And I think Gladys Bentley would wear, you know, a suit and tie as well. Yeah. But it was places like Mona's where a lot of these women, not all of them and not many of them, but some of them didn't have to remain closeted. You've got stories of women on stage who would be very open and acting almost like like a lewd dude on stage hollering at the women from on stage who were in the audience. Um, and then you've got Bessie Smith in 1930s, The Boy in the Boat, singing, When you see two women walking hand in hand, just look them over and try to understand. They'll go to those parties, have the lights down low, only those parties where women can go. Hint, 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 nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Oh, man. And if you haven't seen that Bessie biopic, watch it. It's fantastic. Queen Latifah is well, a queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the thing is that lesbian relationships would not have been acceptable in black Christian communities at large outside of these blues clubs, outside of these um, subcultures at the time, especially for aspiring post-Victorian middle class black Americans who are right. all about you know, uh, the quote unquote respectability politics. Right. Exactly. The whole progressive era ideas of racial uplift, of act totally respectable and dress totally respectably at all times so that we can eventually earn those rights that we deserve, that kind of stuff. So, yes, not everybody was down with open relationships in terms of sexuality. But for a long time in the Victorian and the early progressive eras, People were pretty chill about Boston marriages specifically of those upper class, you know, white women who would have been living together. So what happened? Who ruined it, Caroline? Who always ruins it? Freud. Freud. Yeah. And the rise in uh, psychoanalysis and sexology and these theories about perversion and inversion And even Freud was like, oh, sure, we all go through an anal retentive phase. But if you don't grow out of it, you know, something's real wrong with you. And and suddenly you see this like cultural scramble where everybody's trying to distance themselves like, oh, no, 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 I'm not that. I'm not inverted. I'm not perverted. I'm I'm totally fine. I'm so masculine or I'm so feminine. I'm going to get married to a person of the opposite sex and it's going to be fine. Stop looking at me. Meanwhile. Lesbian love was being cast in, you know, mainstream media as morbid and diseased. And you would have um, these like fear mongering columns warning parents to make sure that their daughters weren't hanging out with girlfriends for too long or else it was going to ruin them from marriage. And speaking of marriage around this time, too, you have the rise of companionate marriage as the new ideal. Finally, we reach a point where 
husbands and wives are expected to be friends with each other, essentially. Yeah, the idea of marrying your soulmate rather than it just being like a transaction, essentially, between your father and your husband. Um, and so with with this idea and with sort of the eventual dismantling of separate spheres, it's not as taboo for men and women to be friends, to express public displays of affection toward one another. And so you have fewer opportunities, but also fewer like socially acceptable opportunities for women to develop those close, intimate, separate sphere type relationships. And so suddenly there's not as much of a of a cover, so to speak, for these Boston marriages. Yeah, I mean, it's wild to consider just how powerful that homophobia was and really has been and is finally starting to erode in our culture. Um, And one example of that, that Lillian Faderman cited was Willa Cather, author of My Antonia, who dressed in men's clothes and called herself Dr. William. Yeah, I love it. I mean, she had short, short, short hair. Oh, yeah. Um, and she, this was her, um, her style in college. But as she, you know, was on the verge of graduation, you see her transitioning into a more traditionally feminine presentation because yeah. she, you know, it wouldn't have been acceptable for her to to leave college as Dr. William. Yeah. And so now we're at a place where we have marriage equality and you can be out and socially accepted for the most part, for the most part. Um, but. We don't have anything we call Boston marriages anymore. I know. I guess we don't need to call them Boston marriages. But it is so great that we have this information and we have more people looking into these histories, um, these queer histories, basically, and going back and not adding sex back in per se, but correcting that desexualization, that deromanticization that has happened over the centuries And being able to look at these women for what they were, which is independent women of their own minds who loved other women. Well, and it's also part of these women's historical records being not just the things they did, but also the people that they were. And I think that that's so just so critical for our full understanding of, you know, the women that came before us, our our lady heritage. Right. And to just see, to be able to get that full picture in the full context of the women who really shaped our society and who were our earliest trailblazers in terms of culture and freedom and social and career opportunities. Well, and also finally, um, it's some evidence for people out there who think that uh, LGBT orientations are simply made up that, no, this has pretty much been around since forever. Ladies have always loved ladies. Dudes have always loved dudes. Mix and match however you want. <laughs> uh, shake and serve. Yes. <laughs> so with that, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, I'm wondering if there's anyone in our audience who has a family member who is in a Boston marriage. Hmm. You have maybe that aunt who lived with her roommate for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. 
Okay, so I have a letter here from Ashley in response to our episode on gender and HIV. Uh, Ashley writes, I had to say that I was really moved by your misgendering of HIV episode. Academically, I've always been really interested in the sociology of the HIV epidemic. I've read books, taken college classes on it, even led workshops about HIV in women. However, last year, HIV hit closer to home than I ever thought it would when my stepmother-in-law died of AIDS. She was diagnosed as HIV positive two weeks before she died. She had been sick for years, but was never tested for HIV. No one, not her doctor, certainly not herself, ever thought that she was at risk, so no one thought to connect the dots on her symptoms. My father-in-law still won't tell anyone what she died of because of the stigma attached to it. Her story reflected so many of the issues you talked about. Fear of being tested, stigma, the idea that women aren't at risk, that I just had to write in. I hope your listeners can make a connection to their own lives and get tested to help dispel the stigma around HIV. It's not a disease of, quote, those people over there. It's every one of us. And thank you again for sharing this information with the world. And thank you, Ashley. So I've got a letter here from Christina. Subject line, period pride cometh before the fall. She writes, the secrecy and shame that surrounds periods is ridiculous. Everyone poops and pees and talks freely about that, so why not talk about periods? Despite that, I found myself mentally scoffing at slash making squick faces while listening to parts of the podcast. Hashtag tweet your period, not my thing. I don't even have a Twitter. Art using period blood, squick. But also, if that's your jam, you do you. The subject of public period perils particularly piqued my ire until I had my own not ten minutes later. Karma is a bitch, and she works fast. I finished the podcast, went to the pantry to make a cup of tea, and then had to abruptly dash to my desk, followed by the bathroom as I felt warm blood running down the inside of my left leg. Thank God I was wearing one, dark wash jeans, and two, riding boots. Also, even though it felt like things weren't so bad that I couldn't tidy myself up, I still went home for the day. Wet jeans are the worst, and jeans wet from your own blood? Unspeakably worse. Final twist of the day, I had to take the red line home, sitting in a red seat. (laughs) Oh, Christina, thank you so much for sharing that surprise period story with you. I really love that our listeners trust us enough that they would share period stories with us. I mean, let's talk about some romantic friendships. (laughs) That's it right there. And listeners, if you've got stories you want to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about Boston marriages, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. 
Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.